Good morning. I'm Phil. Um, I've been part of this church for 11 years, maybe. Married to the lovely Fiona at the back. And uh, today, I've got the pleasure of not just continuing the, the uh, series on John, but I actually have a nice passage. <laughs> Morag last week got the short straw, but she did very well. Uh, this week, we're looking at John 16, and we're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, by the way, I'm quite pleased we have modern translations of the Bible. Otherwise, I'd be talking to you today about the Holy Ghost. And that, in my mind, conjures up all sorts of unhelpful images, including a famous scene in the Blues Brothers where James Brown is preaching. And there's some crazy, crazy dancing. So today we're talking about the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Ghost, so there'll be none of that, thank you. Um, because it's quite a familiar passage we're going to look at, um, I'm going to try something different. Rather than put the passage up on the screen and get you to look at it and read along, what I'm going to do is a high-risk strategy, but we'll try it anyway. I'm going to read, and I want you just to listen. And because our brains process information differently uh, when it's auditory rather than visual, what I'd like you to try is maybe shutting your eyes if you, like me, are easily distracted. Um, however... There is a caveat to that. You're only allowed to shut your eyes if you promise to open them when I tell you to. Otherwise, I know what's going to happen. So, let's get started. I've said these things to you, Jesus went on, to stop you from being tripped up. They will put you out of the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will suppose that they are in that way offering worship to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have been talking to you about these things so that when their time comes, you will remember that I told you about them. I didn't say these things to you from the start because you were with me. But now I'm going to the one who sent me None of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. However, it's the truth that I'm telling you. It's better for you that I should go away. If I don't go away, you see, the helper won't come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong on three counts, sin, justice and judgment in relation to sin because they don't believe in me in relation to justice because I'm going to the father and you won't see me anymore in relation to judgment because the ruler of this world is judged there are many things I still have to say to you Jesus continued but you're not yet strong enough to take them when the spirit of com truth comes though he will guide you in all the truth. He won't speak on his own account, you see, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will announce to you what's to come. He will glorify me because he will take what belongs to me and will announce it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. That's why I said that he would take what is mine and announce it to you. Okay, that's the end of the reading. You can all wake up now, or, or at least open your eyes and pretend that you weren't asleep. And if you have a copy of the Bible with you, 
feel free to turn it up now to John 16. Um, for those who are wondering, that was actually a translation that N.T. Wright uses in his commentary entitled John for Everyone. I picked it just because it's a bit unusual, um, so hopefully that kept it fresh. For the rest of the sermon, I'm going to use the New Living Translation, and if my wonderful son is paying attention, that will appear as if by, not magic, what's the, the spiritual equivalent? As if by providence on the screens. Um, however, there is a, a danger in using a modern translation, um, which reminds me of a story, and stories are always good. There was once a young church leader who was so afraid while preaching his first sermon that he could hardly speak. Before his second sermon, he asked an older, more experienced leader, perhaps, perhaps we should call the older leader Jeremy. Um, how can I relax? Jeremy said, this Sunday it might help if you slow down and use your own words. Sunday came and the young man did as he was suggested and he thought everything went very well. After the sermon, he asked Jeremy how he'd done. Jeremy replied, just fine, except next time, remember, we don't refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Big Daddy, Junior, and the Spook. <laughs> You'll be glad to know that the New Living Translation doesn't use any of those phrases, so I think we're safe. So um, we picked up in verse 1 of uh, John 16, which is a continuation of where Morag left us last week. So she was covering the warnings of opposition, persecution, and death. Um, but the main theme in that was, you're not alone, even if things are really tough, uh, God is with you. And that's the context for this passage. A.J. Gordon, a 19th century American Baptist preacher, put it like this. Before Pentecost, the disciples found it hard to do easy things. After Pentecost, they found it easy to do hard things. So that's the context for this, the spirit enabling people who before were petrified to do great things. Moving on to verse 5. Um, this business about going away and the disciples not asking. For those who've read the Bible a lot, you might be scratching your head a little bit at this. Because in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter asks something very similar to this. And in fact, in 14, verse 5, um, Thomas as well alludes to something similar. So what's going on here? Well, the safest interpretation is to say we don't know for sure. Um, there's lots of theories, and they're all very interesting, but we don't know. So I'm going to give you some of the theories, and then we're going to move on to something that I think is more important for today. Um, so some of these theories are there might have been two versions of this account that were stitched together. Um, so there were there seem to be two passages from 13 to 14 and then from 15 to the middle of 16. And some people who study these things call that a seam in the gospel where two parts are joined together. Or perhaps Peter asked the question earlier, but because he was easily distracted and didn't follow up on it, maybe he wasn't that serious. Maybe he was just making conversation. Or maybe the tense might help us. They had asked in the past, but they hadn't asked again now. Or perhaps they were more concerned with the effect that Jesus leaving might have on them than they were in where he was going and why he was going. I think the last two seem the most reasonable, but I'll leave you to make your minds up. Let's jump to verse 7 then. 
it's best that I go away because the advocate is coming. So I, I'm using the New Living Translation because I like this, this phrase, the advocate. Other translations, you might see the word helper, comforter, encourager, counselor, or even intercessor. These are all really good terms, but they can seem quite passive, quite nice, quite easy to ignore. And I don't think that's the sense that, uh, that John wanted to use here, and I don't think it was the sense that Jesus had when he was speaking it. So take the word comfort, for example. We shouldn't think of Linus carrying his blanket in the uh, cartoon strip Peanuts. Instead, we should use an illustration that I've heard several times and I'm going to steal from other people because I can't remember who said it first. So here we go. The Bayeux Tapestry depicts the uh, story of the Norman invasion led by William the Conqueror. In one panel, which you see on the screen, a bishop is seen, uh, shall we say, gently encouraging by means of a blunt instrument, a group of reluctant soldiers. And the caption above, um, I'm reliably informed, not reading Latin, says something along the lines of Bishop Odo comforts the troops. So there we go. That's a nice thought, isn't it? Comfort by means of a blunt instrument. Uh, so one reflection on this that I read uh, said that the word comfort contains the word fort. Fort means strong. And therefore, comfort means making people strong when they're feeling weak. I thought this was a bit of a stretch. But much to my surprise, when I dug into it, one of the roots uh, for this word does come from the, the Latin word that means to strengthen. So it's actually not too far off the mark. To use a slightly different metaphor, I recently reread the series of books by C.S. Lewis entitled The Chronicles of Narnia. They're not just for children, by the way. If they're good, they're good for adults too. Um, I think the picture of Aslan is helpful. Uh, in several of the books, people are absolutely terrified. They're frozen with fear. And what happens is Aslan, this mighty lion, breathes on them. And then suddenly they don't just feel slightly better, but they're able to take decisive action. So quoting from Prince Caspian as an example, Aslan says, You have listened to fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? Now again, I like this picture because um, I think having an enormous lion breathe on you might not be the most comforting thing in the world. I think actually you might be reminded that he's got very, very big teeth and he could do a lot of damage. And again, I quite like that tension in the picture that comfort isn't something passive and gentle and nice. It's something that causes us to take action. Then in uh, verse 7, we've talked about the advocate. I wanted to pick up on something that um, I think it was Tim a few weeks ago said. Um, he said that the Holy Spirit's not a lawyer who just says what we want him to say. Instead, he's God's advocate given to us from the Father to speak truth in Jesus' name, even if that truth is hard to hear. And then Morag last week picked up on what an advocate does in Scottish law as well. So if you weren't here, grab the podcast. And for those who are desperately keen, uh, N.T. Wright's commentary unpacks the legal uh, framework even more uh, and does it much better than I can, so I'm not going to bother. A key message that I wanted to take from this verse is the disciples are sad that Jesus is going, but it's better for them because the Holy Spirit's coming. And as charismatic Christians, this should really 
This should really touch our buttons, as they say in the common parlance. This should make us quite excited. Uh, we have the friend. We have the helper, the advocate, God himself dwelling within us. This is amazing. And then verse 8. We see what the Holy Spirit comes to do. This is really the, the meat of the, the, the text. Firstly, he comes to convict the world of sin, God's righteousness, and judgment. John Stott wrote some wise things about this in his commentary, where he wrote quite a lot of wise things. But I picked a few. One thing that he said that really stuck out at me was that um, he picked up on a, a guy called David Wells who wrote a book about the work that the Holy Spirit does. And he summarized it with the title, God the Evangelist. I thought that was quite helpful. Um, conviction is seen in the context of a broader work of salvation. So God is convicting people in order to help them to make connections with himself. It's not to make them feel bad. This conviction of sin, some of the commentaries use the phrase exposing guilt and sin, uh, showing somebody the sin and helping them come to repentance. That's really well illustrated in Acts 2, which is one of the best bits in the Bible. It's just one of those passages I love where Peter preaches and uh, goes from being terrified and hiding in a room to standing up and basically telling people, uh, you crucified the Savior, but it's okay. Here's what has, happens next. And thousands of people repented. Let's move on to verse 10. Death and resurrection of Jesus, by which he goes to the Father, um, demonstrate God's righteousness. Just as an aside, I wanted to note that uh, righteousness is available because Jesus ascends. Righteousness is not available just because he died. Uh, the gospel without resurrection is just not good news. So uh, I just wanted to comment on that in passing. And then the second half of this, the prince of this world now stands condemned. When Jesus died on the cross, although those around must have thought it was a judgment on him, in fact, the one who was judged and condemned was Satan, and with him, all who are his children and slaves. And that's picked up earlier in John 8, 42 to 47, if you want to look at it in more detail. So taking these few verses as a whole, 8 to 11, uh, we see conviction of sin in us as individuals in the context of a much bigger cosmic picture of righteousness and judgment. Now, one final thing on conviction before we move on. It can sound negative. It often hurts. It's like being in a dark room um, for some time and then having somebody turn on the light. Your eyes can't quite cope and it hurts. Um, this reminded me of the passage that Morag read from John 3 last week in the message. I'll just read that now. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work it is. Moving on now to verses 12 to 13. We see the work that the Holy Spirit does in us as Christians in guiding us into truth. Again, this is one of those phrases, I think particularly in the English translations, that sounds quite 
nice and passive if we let it. Um, N.T. Wright again uh, had something to say about that, um, and rather than try and paraphrase it, I'm just going to read a quote to you. Because the Holy Spirit will do all these things, those who suffer persecution and hatred for the name of Jesus can trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. But at the same time, all this comes as a challenge. How will the Spirit do it? Will it not be, at least in part, through the people in whom the Helper comes to live? Will it not, at least in part, be through their speaking out under the Spirit's guidance on behalf of those suffering injustice and oppression? So that struck me. Um, and then, of course, Morag picked up on that very subject last week and shared some of the facts and figures about persecution that goes on around the world of the church. Uh, so I thought that was a, a nice counterpoint to the idea of guiding into truth. Sometimes guiding into truth means that we get prompted to take action. And then cantering through to the last couple of verses, uh, these uh, bring us really neatly into prayer ministry when we invite the Holy Spirit to speak and work through us while people pray with us. Now some of you be thinking, well, you've just battered through that and you've missed all the meat. And it's true. I've left an awful lot of stuff uncovered. Uh, the positive spin on that is I've left plenty of fruit on the tree for another day. But the reality is when speaking about the Holy Spirit, I thought it was unwise to speak for too long and not let him do his work. Just before we uh, move into praying, um, I had a few things that I think God laid on my heart that I thought might be for today. It's unlikely all of them are for one person. It's likely that there's little fragments for a few. Firstly, if you're not yet a Christian, now's a perfect chance. There should be plenty of people coming up for prayer. So come up with them. Ask somebody to pray with you. It's okay if you don't understand it all or if you don't understand much of it. Because to be perfectly honest, the rest of us are in that boat as well. Secondly, I think there are some here who might have tried to fashion God into a comfortable, nice, non-threatening, middle-class role. If you're trying to run away from the battle, or you think you might have been guilty of shaping God in your own image, maybe he's trying to instill courage in you. And rather than it being a nice cozy blanket, it might feel a little more like a club around the back. Or perhaps the lion breathing on you. Again, if that's for you, come forward for prayer. Um, thirdly, and I think this is a bit counterintuitive, I think there might be one or two who have just been trying too hard to try and convince the friends or the family to become Christians. Now this passage is, is quite clear. You can calm down because it's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. You just need to focus on being friends, spending time and share what God's doing in your life at that time. So God wants to release you from a burden that's not yours to carry. And then fourthly, that thing about speaking out for people who are persecuted and oppressed, that might have resonated with one or two of you. Again, if that's you, come forward for prayer, for sustaining, for inspiring, but also for wisdom to know what to do. And then finally, and this is a complete cop-out, if you want more of God, then you know what to do. You can come forward for prayer. So that was a very short sermon. Um, we've got loads of time for ministry. Uh, as Jesse comes back, um, so that we can start. I'm just going to finish with a quote from David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a Reformed preacher, who also happened to be a doctor, 
and he said this about the Holy Spirit. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under the stimulants, for that is where he belongs. I quite like that. A reformed teacher who was based at Westminster Chapel for a very, very long time, having something quite amusing but also quite insightful to say about the Holy Spirit. So if any of that's touched you, come forward for prayer. If none of that has and you just want more of God, come forward for prayer as well. And I think that's probably us.